The name of this show is Hypercritical. It's a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. John Syracuse and I, I'm Dan Benjamin, will talk about how uh, uh, things go well and sometimes don't go so well for companies like Apple, right? And that's what we talk about here. It's not just Apple. Yeah. And uh, the, the fact is, John, nothing is so perfect that you can't complain about it. That's what we say. It's true. And we would like to thank the Intuit Small Business blog and their mobile app, as well as Campaign Monitor's Worldview, for making this show possible. We'll tell you more about those as the show progresses. Uh, what are we complaining about today? First, the FU, right? You got a lot of FU. The whole show is FU. Not too much today. I trimmed a lot because I know we have a lot of stuff to get to. We I mean, you're trying to keep the show short now, right? Got had had some requests that the show be uh, we not, not not cutting it short. That's not the right thing, but just make keeping track of time. That person who asked for that didn't even mention my show, so he probably doesn't even listen. So. I don't think he's aware of your show. He probably looked at the runtime of it and said, "I can't listen to that." Might have been short, not that long. I'm not doing two hour. Things no, with I, James Bond tacked onto the end or anything? Yeah, I think you got. Of all the shows, I think you are probably the most time sensitive. Uh, so there you go. So I feel no compunction to try to cut it short. All right, don't or cut it any short. Normal, any shorter than I normally do. Don't do anything else. Don't don't change a thing. Okay. So follow up time. Uh, so we missed last week because I was on vacation. You were on vacation. We tried to schedule it before. You had you had told me six or seven weeks earlier that you were going to be on vacation. I put it on the calendar, and then I didn't I didn't remember or something. So it's, it was not your fault that we didn't have a show. It was probably mine. Uh, but, probably. You, but the fact was you were not available at the regular time, and I didn't realize that we had changed it. So anyway, uh, so I'm going back two shows for some follow-up stuff, or two weeks, but it's just one show. Uh, so last time, what were we talking about? Uh, we were talking about Objective-C and stuff like that. and High-level uh, languages, low-level languages. Yeah, and, and I thought it was a shame that some of that stuff, uh, there was at least two or three good points that bled over into the After Dark. So I put in the show notes link this week the link to the After Dark, most of which is just typical After Dark stuff. But there are one or two good points in there about the Objective-C stuff that I wish I had gotten into the regular show. Ah. Um, mostly having to do with how the people at Apple, how the employees at Apple are probably not properly motivated to resolve the situation talked about in the previous show. So I don't want to go into it now for time purposes, but if you want a little bit more on that topic, I suggest checking out the After Dark, which is at that super hidden link. But if you go to the show notes for this show, you will find the link to it. Uh, And I would also suggest subscribing to that because it's usually pretty funny. Uh, It's not just all hypercritical After Dark. It's all sorts of shows. A lot of cursing. It's, uh, everybody who asks for cursing and doesn't understand why we edit out the profanity, uh, no holds barred there. It's marked as explicit. It's not part of the master feed. It's like a little Easter egg. You got to go find it. Yeah. Go find it. So uh, it's interesting that when I did the original series on the, the Copeland 2010 stuff, uh, a whole bunch of articles like many years ago, and I got a lot of... Uh, responses eventually asking about mac ruby mm-hmm. and which I, I i should also mention i erroneously referred to as, as j j ruby I, I, I knew what you meant I you knew what i meant and, and you were too polite to correct me i i clearly know the difference i've used both i meant mac ruby thanks for the thousands of emails and twitter twitter comments about that i do know the difference and thank you for reminding me yeah so uh the mac ruby people emailed a lot. This was many years ago, back when MacRuby was younger, and their 
email enthusiasm kind of tapered off uh, over time. But then when I brought it up on the show, they came back and they said, hey, what about MacRuby? Partly my fault for forgetting to talk about MacRuby because it is definitely worth talking about. I, the last show I talked about how uh, bridges stink. I mean, you have a bridge to an API that's written for one language, but you get to write to it in another language and the right. bridge uh, connects the two things together. And I said I described lots of things that are bad about bridges and how you don't get to use the uh, the cool features of the high-level language that you want to use because you're too busy doing things in terms of the lower-level language. Right. So the MacRuby people then, as now, uh, bring up the points that a lot of things I was asking for, MacRuby delivers. So uh, there's links in the show notes to MacRuby. You should check it out. But uh, just some examples. Like, you don't have to deal with, uh, you know, making NS strings or whatever when you're doing Cocoa programming in MacRuby because the the bridge makes Ruby strings into uh, uh, bridged over to NS mutable strings. And the Ruby hashes are really NS mutable dictionaries under the covers. And the Ruby objects are really Objective-C objects. So you're not just using like the skin of the language to call APIs in some other language. They've taken a lot of the native uh, data structures and features uh, and interesting tidbits in Ruby and found an Objective-C equivalent and mapped it to that. Mm. Uh, now, and also this is the other thing people like to bring up is this, hey, this is an Apple project. Like Apple developers are working on it. Uh, it's the people, you know, it's not just some random third party thing. It's actually under the auspices of Apple in some fashion. A lot of Apple's open source stuff, it's hard to tell what is, you know, just a project that some people at Apple wanted to do and their bosses let them do versus what is a strategic initiative that's important for the entire company. And often a project will start in one way and, and transition uh, to the other thing, like LLVM probably started life as, oh, let's just, you know, hire this guy and check out this type of thing. And then there was a, a you know, an effort to convince the powers that be and eventually the entire company that, hey, we're going to transition our entire compiler strategy to this new thing. And here's how we're going to do it. And lo and behold, here we are today and we're almost completely transitioned. So MacRuby could be like that someday. Uh, but the, what I said about MacRuby many years ago still holds today in that I still don't think a bridge is the is the right answer. Cocoa is still designed for Objective C, and even if you're mapping, you know, your types from the higher level language to low level one, you're still dealing with, you know, NS mutable strings under the covers, and you, you, you know, it's the API is made. It's not a Ruby API. If you look at the API, you wouldn't say, "Boy, that reminds me of you know Rails or some other API that's idiomatic, uh, at, like like the uh, built for the Ruby language." You look at it and say, "Well, that that sure looks a lot like Objective C to me in this." All sorts of APIs, but there's no reasonable way to bridge. You just have to call these methods and, and with these name parameters that look like Objective-C. And you're like, man, why do we need all these parameters? Why am I passing in a value that's going to be a, a, a read-write attribute that's going to have the error written into it and all sorts of stuff like that? It's sort of not the Ruby way, but you still have to write to those languages. Uh, there's the two layers of debugging problem, where anytime you have sort of a bridge language, you would like to debug at the Ruby level. But the API and your executing code is executing at the Objective-C level. And so if you're using GDB or LDB or something, you're not debugging Ruby. You're debugging lower level than that. So then they have to write a higher level debugger. Um, but sometimes you might want to look at the lower level stuff. So now you have two layers of debuggers to deal with. Uh, and if you, there are bugs in the bridge, that's like the worst possible situation when there are bugs in the bridge itself and you're trying to debug what the problem is. Um, and there's the fact that to write a reasonable Cocoa program, you're not just writing to Cocoa. You're also doing you know, core graphics and core foundation and other APIs that really are lower level. 
and you can bridge them too, but it's an even bigger mismatch between what Ruby expects and what these uh, you know, native C APIs, like it's not even Objective-C, it's just plain C. Um, and if you try to keep that to paper over that, then the developers feel like they're being kept away from the power tools. Like, oh, I really want to use core graphics to do some drawings here, but the Ruby language makes it, discourages me from reaching down to do that or makes it more difficult or more cumbersome or doesn't feel like I'm, I'm you know, doing things the right way. And uh, there's also the, the, the non-native problem where you're like, well, I'm going to write a Cocoa application. Well, are you going to use like the native language for, for writing Cocoa applications, Objective-C, or are you going to use a bridge language because you need a crutch or because you're a whimper? Because, but, you know, it's this macho, <laughs> this macho thing where uh, there would be this divide between the old school people who are like, yeah, I'm writing a real native Cocoa application, and you're not because you're using this other thing. Hmm. Um, and with, with all that said, it's like, would experienced Objective-C developers see enough reason to switch? Like, because obviously, if you're the, the best Objective-C programmers today are comfortable with Objective-C. So there has to be something pretty significant to make them switch. You have to have a carrot as well as a stick. Now, Apple could just force everyone to switch and say, you know, you know Mac Ruby is going to be the thing. It's our new high-level language. is slowly going to transition away from, uh, you know, C-based languages, and, and this is the path, and you're going to have to go to it. Yeah, that's, that's the stick version. But the carrot has to be, Hey, awesome Objective-C developers who have made our platform what it is, here's the good things that await you if you stop writing your, your code in this and start writing it in that. And I think that's a tough sell because, I mean, it's hard enough for Apple to even get the real old-school Objective-C guys to use the dot syntax for properties, let alone to, to switch to like a high-level language and to convince them that there's a, you know, there's a good reason to do that. So I have to come down in a similar position as I did many years ago on Mac Ruby is that I don't think bridges are the answer and I don't think Mac Ruby is the answer. Certainly it's the best bridge I've seen and it has the most promise. And if Apple wanted to make it work, they could, but I don't think it's the best solution. I think it's kind of like a, a half measure. And maybe that's a, something in favor of it. And that if you're going to transition to something, don't make this big giant leap. Uh, I, I, th I come down the other side. I say that the big giant leap is the only way you're going to, the only way you're going to have a carrot big enough to get people to come over, you know, it to say this is totally different than what you expected it's awesome in ways that you haven't even imagined and it's so unlike what you've done before that it, you won't end up making unfavorable comparisons to the objective c that you're used to and then there'd be a gradual transition to whatever this thing is but as i said in the previous show i have no idea what that thing is so it's easy for me to say oh just make it awesome and really radically different than what's out there now and everyone will want to switch to it so that's mac ruby i i, I think it's it's a plausible contender and uh, apple can make it work but I, I so far don't see anything that makes me think apple is, has blessed that as the next generation i think it's definitely in the interesting experiment phase and i haven't seen any moves from apple that make me think otherwise what did you think about if if you remember when i guess i don't want to say when mac os 10 was gaining prominence as a really cool place to build apps but it, it was at that turning point when things were were really Apple was really really pushing to try and get as many people on board with developing Mac OS 10 applications in any capacity and if you remember and we talked about this a little bit you've touched on it again there was the the Java you could use Java you could write apps in Java right there inside of uh the you know the SDK you could just write in Java and they yeah. they they never really they made a big deal out of the fact that they had that and that you could do that but they never really, really got in there and supported it. They never really had fully, fle you know, fleshed out documentation for it. And, and then it, they just kind of swept it under the, the rug and forgot about it. 
and well, and the people who were you know like the big nerd ranch guys uh you know and 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 those books always said look if you're going to build apps in mac os 10 just bite the bullet and learn objective c don't do it in java it's it's not as good and some of the first versions of the encoder which is one of the few cocoa apps or, or i should say mac os 10 apps that i built we actually had some parts of it that were in java and it, it was true it, it it just made more sense to just do it in objective c don't you need apple's involvement to re- and commitment to really make that successful, to know that you're in, if, if investing in something that's that's long term as a developer. At, at that time, uh, Apple wasn't coming from a position of strength with respect right. to languages. They were like, you know, they they had uh, the capability to have a Java bridge. Java was really popular back then, and they were trying to figure out how do we get developers. And if Java was going to be the way that they did it, someone in Apple thought uh, that that would be a good idea, and the the, the powers to be said, okay, fine, you know. Let's give that a try. We're going to do the carbon thing. We're going to do cocoa. Right. And you want you think you can do a Java bridge? We'll try that too. Just because they were hedging their bets and they wanted to say, you know, we got to do everything we can to get people to develop this. I don't think they knew what the result would be because they were coming from a ton of developers who wrote Mac toolbox applications, right, yeah. or PowerPlant or whatever. So they had to have carbon for them. Like they learned that lesson. So the, the Apple guys were saying, uh, you know, Cocoa Next may be great, but there's not that many Next developers in the world. And we're not sure that we can convince our huge stable of experienced Mac developers to switch to this thing that you love so much. So that was one bet. And then someone else was saying, well, Java's really popular, and there's tons of Java programmers in the world. So let's try that. Let's see if we can get, you know, a, a, you know hey, you can write Mac OS 10 applications in Java, and, and they'll be awesome. So give that a try. And, and you Objective-C guys, you Next people, we're going to make them use your API, but we're just going to make them use a different language so they don't have to learn Objective-C. So they had all these irons in the fire. Um, the fact that the Objective-C proponents were inside the company, and there were a lot of them, and they slowly came to dominance probably helped. But it also helps that you know, people did the math, and they said, well, I might as well just learn this Objective-C thing. It's not too different. It's got some weird square brackets, but it's mostly just C. Uh, and most of them were more inclined to go from C, C++ to Objective-C than to go from C, C++ to Java. Uh, and the final thing is that the Java thing was a bridge, and bridges stink. It gets back to my whole, you know, bridge thing. They don't want to do. It's not like the real API. Uh, it's not the real language to use. It was a bridge, and you know, like you said, when you look at the docs, the docs talked about Objective C because there were pre-existing things. They didn't talk about Java, and it was just a big mess. So, the Java bridge fell by the wayside. Had to be supported for many, many years, just out of respect for the people who did sort of put some time into it. But eventually, they dropped it. And, you know, Carbon has gone by the wayside, too, like we went through the transition. Uh, the bottom line is that they moved everybody into uh, Cocoa and Objective-C. They found their winner in that, in that uh, competition. But it is interesting that they had, like, they had basically a memory-managed language. It just didn't work out for reasons not really related to language, mostly related to the fact that it's a bridge and because they were using that language to write to an API that was made for Objective-C. I'm with you. All right, uh, I've got one more. So, would you would you then go so far as to say, John, that the the concept of of a bridge is a bad concept, and Java is proof of that, or you wouldn't you go that far? I think the concept. I think bridges are bad in general. It doesn't mean you can't make it work if they re- like. I said, if they really wanted to, and they used Mac Ruby as like their transition strategy, and they slowly by steps change, you know develop the API until eventually, you know, many, many years down the line, people people are literally writing Java applications and it's no longer a bridge. Like they transitioned away from all the memory dangerous uses and stuff through a series of deprecations. It could be done. 
but that doesn't mean bridges aren't bad. That just means that they may have advantages in terms of getting you from point A to point B uh. through a series of steps. But, but yeah, I do not think they're they're good. Uh, there are things hard about clean breaks as well. Uh, you could kind of say that Objective C is not a, is not a bridge from C C plus plus, but it was a nice transition because they share the same base language. Um, I don't know if there's ever been a successful bridge transition, but I feel like it could be done. But no, I'm not I'm not a fan of bridges. As we'll get to more when we get to the main topic, I'm gonna do a, a quick aside here. If you think we have time on yeah, uh, yeah. on Merlin's stuff from uh, back to work last week, sure. This is a, a strange aside in the middle of a show about programming languages, but I want to be timely because I keep it around for weeks. It won't make any sense. So last week, uh, Merlin Mann, who does the show Back to Work with you, had a blog post about his ongoing struggles for uh, with the book project he's working on. Uh, and for people who don't know, Merlin Mann is a uh, productivity expert, if you want to put that in quotes. I'm sure he would hate that description, but I don't know how else to encapsulate what he does. But he, he, he writes and gives talks about productivity and, and related topics. Uh, and last week, he did this blog post that, that explained the problems he was having uh, getting his current work project done to do a book. And then you did a show about it. And then an After Dark as well, which are in the show notes. And he had the, the preview page open for his show where you get the people, listeners get to put comments before the show airs. And then you talked about the comments uh, on the air. And a couple of the comments, I didn't write any comments, but I went through the comments before the show and I did hit click that little like button yeah. uh, on some of the ones that I thought were good. It's and great. Most of, the ones, most of the ones I liked were ones that were challenging questions where they would say, uh, the, the gist of most of them was, uh, hey, Merlin, man, you're, you're this productivity expert, but here you are not able to get this book done that's, you know, you're super late on and you're kind of seem like you're bailing out on it. Uh, how are we supposed to trust anything you say about productivity when in your real life you can't obviously can't be productive? And there were several people asking that. And that's like the obvious question about this whole thing. And you talked about it a lot on the show. And the reason I clicked those like buttons was not that I agreed with the people who were saying it, but, but that I wanted him to confront those points head on, you know, because that's, that's the, the question that jumps right out at you immediately about this whole thing. And, uh, and he did that for the most part. He, he gave, to, you know, answered the questions head on and gave answers that he thought uh, people wanted to hear. You know, he wasn't shying away from it. If anything, he was trying to stay on topic. Uh, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't let you uh, move on to the next question because he wanted to feel like he addressed it entirely. So that was good. Uh, but the other reason I picked those those questions is that I felt like I knew what the answer was going to be. Like I wanted to hear him say, you know, I felt like if someone had told me defend Merlin Mann, I would have a, a vigorous defense for his his actions and, and what he had done uh, with the book and everything. And I wanted to hear him say that too. Right. And he got out most of the points, but one of them that he missed that I wanted to throw out there, here's that, that I would have said if I was in his shoes and someone said the same thing to me, here's what I would have said about that. Uh, you know, so I would have said that, yeah, the expectation is that if you, some guy writing a book about productivity is going to be written by a productivity expert, and that's going to be like somebody who's really good at being productive, right? And that's what all those questions were based on because people feel cheated and duped or whatever when they see the problems that he's having in real life. But what I would say to that is that in reality, a person writing a book about productivity is most likely someone who's struggled with productivity himself. And, and not just someone who struggled, because lots of people struggle with productivity. If you're writing a book about productivity, you're probably someone who struggled with productivity and also someone who's smart enough and self-aware enough to explore why you're struggling with it and come up with answers, right? That's the combination you need. You need someone who, who having a problem with it and someone who's really smart, 
who's going to think about why am I having a problem with this? What's the deal here? If you've never had a problem with productivity and you're super productive and everything, you will probably not have much deep insight into what helps make people productive. Because it'll just be like, oh, I don't know, I just sit down and I do work. Like, you're not going to write a book about productivity because you have no idea how it works. You've never even given it any thought, right? It's like uh, you had an interview with uh, Horace Dedu on, on the, the pipeline recently. Yeah. And what he said was like, basically, mistakes are how we learn, which is a topic that uh, we've talked about on the show before. And so what Merlin's experiences are basically saying is Merlin is still making mistakes, which means that Merlin is still learning. Like, if you think you know everything about productivity and you're just going to make pronouncements from the mountaintop, you've basically stopped learning. Like, you don't want to read that guy's book. He's going to be like, I know everything there is to know about productivity, and I'm just going to lay it out for you, and here it is, right? Because you think you've got it figured all, uh, all figured out, right? It's kind of similar to the, the, the stereotype you hear that, like, you know, psychology majors in school are the people most likely to have psychological problems. That, that's just the way the world works. If you're interested in the topic or have any insight into the topic, it's probably something you've dealt with yourself and, you know, struggle with. And it's not just the struggling. Like I said, you have to be someone who has these problems and also someone who's super smart and self-aware. That's how all, you know, great books and investigations uh, into anything that has anything to do with, like, you know, uh, personality-wise or, or psychological things or any sort of, you know, human type of endeavor, not just, like, writing about math or something. Right, right. It's the people who have, who have struggled with it and thought about it and come up with answers and who continue to do so who have the most insights. And, and I wish he had made that point in the show, and since he didn't, I'm making that point in the show. So for all the people who are... <laughs> thinking that they don't want to read a productivity book by someone who can't finish a book, that's exactly the one you do want to read. Uh, because when it's done, you will see that it has the, you know, the, the scars of experience have uh, been built into that book. That's a great point. I mean, I, in a way, you almost feel like a book like this, I don't know, maybe, maybe this sounds weird, but you almost want it to be hard. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, like I said, if, you, if it's easy, if it's some dude who's like hasn't thought about productivity in 10 years because he's been giving the same talk at companies for 10 years and he thought he, he figured it out 10 years ago and he wrote it in a little formula and he got a best-selling book and hasn't given a day of thought since then, that's not useful. You know, you have to still be doing it. You have to still be thinking about it to, you know, to have the insights to share with people because these, these things change. You know, the environment changes, technology changes, all of our lives change. You know, you, you come to different points in your life. You can, you know, relate to things differently when you're, you know, older and a father than when you're younger and stuff. You have to always keep learning and always keep making mistakes. Let's make mistakes. That would be a good name for a show. Yeah. If only somebody would do that. Yeah. All right. Are we ready for main topic? Yeah. Running schedule through 2.30? Yeah, I mean, yeah, this is about what we do. Well, let's do our first, uh, we'll thank our first sponsor. It's the Intuit Small Business blog. If you're in a small or medium-sized business, not a large one, it's probably not for you because they talk about things uh, like uh, starting a business, running a business, social media, integrating it with marketing and that kind of thing. So it really does appeal to, I think, the people who run the, the small and the medium-sized businesses. Well, you can go there. You can go to blog.intuit.com. You can read articles about this. They do interviews with, you know, up and coming uh, business leaders. They even uh, interviewed me, John. Did you read that one? I don't think I did. They interviewed me there, and uh, they do that. They inter- they do interviews, and now they've gone mobile. So there is an Intuit Small Business Blog iOS app, which is very handy. It, it, of course, it works for your iPhone, your iP- the iPod Touch. If you're like uh, John Syracuse, it works for an iPad. And you can read the blog articles, you can do full text searches, you can do uh, tons of stuff. And it's a brand new app. They really want you to go out there and kick the tires on this. So you can download that just by searching for Intuit Blog 
in the iTunes App Store or by going to blog.intuit.com. It's well worth your time to check this out. A lot of really valuable uh, articles. And uh, they have told me that they are coming out with an Android version of the app as well. So go check that out. Thanks to them very much for making this show possible. Now on to the topic, the real All topic. Right. Main topic, the royal wedding. <laughs> That's not the Is that the real? I think that'd be great. Thanks to Robert Hogland in the chat room for that idea. No, that is not the main topic today. Oh, I was, I, I was going to say I'm probably pretty well prepared for that. I, was, I did watch some of it. Sorry to disappoint you guys. I have such a dim awareness that this thing is even taking place yeah. uh, that I would have nothing to say about it, believe yeah. it or not. But today, believe it or not, it's sort of a continuation of the, the Copeland 2010 show because at the end of that show, we started to talk a little bit about programming languages. And I thought that was a topic that was worth the whole show on its own. Uh, some people complained last time that talking about programming stuff was too esoteric and like not in character for the show. Yeah. But I, maybe how? it just, just so happens that we picked less techie topics to begin with. It's definitely in character for me. It is. You're, uh, you are a programmer. That's what you yeah, do that's every what day. what I do for a living. So I don't, I don't feel like it's out of character. So that, this is going to be part of the things that we talk about on the show is programming language type stuff. And you, if you're not a developer and don't care about programming languages, then maybe you can skip this week. Maybe. I still think it would be interesting. But, yeah. But this is definitely what I'm saying is this is definitely not out of character for this for the show, I don't think. All right. No, so, I, don't, I don't think so. Not at all. And as I said in, in the past show, this is a topic that I wanted to write about for a long time, but I could just never get to it, mostly because it is kind of out of character for what I tend to write on Ars Technica and elsewhere. Is I don't tend to write about programming language. That's more of a, a thing you expect to see on either a personal developer blog, which I don't really have one of, or a developer-oriented site, which Ars Technica and Macworld and so on are not. Uh, so I don't get to write about it, but I, I would like to talk about it. Um, so here we go. So in a past show, talked a little bit about how geeks tend to like a meritocracy. I think it was in the show where I was talking about uh, how they felt it was unfair that Windows won the desktop because it was an, an undeserved victory because Mac operating system was better. It was the show where we psychoanalyzed Gruber. I forget what episode that was. <laughs> uh, but that, that tends to be the case. The geeks think that the technically superior solution should win. And, and as we know, it often doesn't. Uh, now in programming languages... They're a weird case because there's something that only geeks care about, but programming languages almost never become popular based on their merits because there are so many more important things than that. So it's, it's kind of a weird situation where this thing that only geeks care about, it's never a meritocracy. And that's why it's a source of lots. That's one of the many reasons why it's a source of lots of tension in the geek community, these arguments about which language is better than another and so on and so forth. Uh, so here are some of the more important things that can make a, a programming language popular. Uh, so when you have, a, you know, what platform is this language the official language of? That's a big thing that can help programming language. Obviously, Objective-C would probably be nowhere if it wasn't the official language of the Mac and iOS platforms. Right. It's the only reason a lot of people have, especially in iOS, the only reason anyone has learned Objective-C is because this is what you need to do if you want to write an iPhone app. Um, can I use this language in more than one place? It's kind of the opposite. Like if I learn this, can I only write for iOS or can I use it someplace else? And this is part of what's made C and C++ ridiculously popular in the early days because you could write C tons of places. Like it seemed like at, at one point, every single platform 
you see as it's you know native systems programming language and C++ similarly. And then later Java was like, oh, you learn Java, but you can use it everywhere. You can use it in all the web development and server-side code and maybe client-side code too, who knows. Um, but it, you weren't just learning a language for one particular thing. Uh, another thing that can help a language is like, can I create a new kind of application with this language? So if, if I learn this language that I, that I never learned before, can I write an application that I can't write in any of the languages that I know now? Or can't write easily. Uh, a good example is that like it, it, CGI at the dawn of the web, you could write a CGI program in C and people did, but it was so clearly not not the thing to do. So that was a lot of what, what gave Perl's popularity and that they're going to say like, you know, CGI web, it's great, but seriously, don't write a C program to parse HTTP headers and <laughs> all this stuff. Here's this other language and it does that stuff much easier and look how short this is. I can give you a nice little CGI uh, in like a little page of code and hey, you don't need to compile it. Uh, and that was a new kind of application that you couldn't write with, you know, a, a compiled thing or C or C++ or, or it, was, it was so cumbersome that you didn't want to, basically. Uh, another thing that can help languages is, is, can I try this hot new thing if I learn this language? Rails is a great example of that. Rails was hot and they're like, well, I, I really want to try this Rails thing. Like, I know how to write web apps. I've been writing web apps for years, but this looks like a cool new way to write web apps. And I guess to try this Rails thing, I have to learn Ruby. Well, okay, I'll do that. It was like, you know, a, a, you could call it a fad, but it's not, that's kind of rude, but you get the idea. Uh, and the, the final thing I have on my list here is, is this one of only a few possible choices for doing this thing? JavaScript is a good example of this. If you want to write client-side web, you know, code for web applications, your choices are basically JavaScript, maybe Java for applets, and maybe Flash, I guess. But Flash requires plugins, and Java is this big bloated thing that nobody really liked, and that's why none of those took off. So your choices are really limited. If you want to write client-side web code, you're basically going to be writing in JavaScript. Right. Or, use, or using a framework like CoffeeScript that turns it into JavaScript for you. We'll talk about that. Okay. So, so the result is, since most programming languages are not picked based on their merits, but picked on these other tons, much more important things, the result of this is that, in my opinion, most programming languages stink. Uh, or in the best case, they eventually stink. That's the best case. The worst, the, the normal case is that they stink from day one, but you have to use them for one of those other reasons that's much more important. And, and which is fine. It's not saying you're miserable doing it or whatever, but the bottom line is that the language itself stinks. And in the best case, the day you start using the language, it's actually awesome and you really like it, but then 10 years down the line, language uh, advancement has moved on and you're stuck using this other one for one of those other reasons so that eventually this language comes to stink relative to everything else. Uh, and it's kind of like programming language, the lifetime of a programming language gets tied to the API or platform lifetime, right? So, you, you know, the, the API or the, the platform will live for just decades sometimes, but during that time, the state of the art in languages has, has you know, advanced way past that. And even just during the first few years, it, you know, it doesn't take long for people to see what it is about the language they're currently using that stinks. When they look off, to the side to see, you know, wow, look at that cool thing they're doing over there. Well, I can't use that because I've got to write iOS applications and I use Objective-C. Or, well, mm. I can't use that because I'm writing web applications and i got to use JavaScript. Uh, and an even worse case is sometimes a language can suck for years and years even before it becomes popular. So <laughs> JavaScript is a great example of this. JavaScript, you know, was introduced in Netscape, whatever it was, 1.0, or you know, ages ago, JavaScript was introduced. Uh, and it just sat there sort of unloved for years. Because they're like, yeah, JavaScript, I guess you can do some stuff to, like, you know, validate forms or something, but whatever, right? <laughs> and, it, and it wasn't, you know, and, 
And it wasn't that great back then. And then years and years later, you know, with better DOM support and CSS and faster CPUs and better browsers and stuff, suddenly JavaScript is hot. It's like, well, now, hey, you know, we've got, we, with all these advances in web engine technology and better CPUs and, you know, all these other things we can do with it, and dynamic HTML or whatever buzzword we're doing, bottom line is suddenly JavaScript became interesting. But it still sucks. It was still the same crappy language it was 50 years ago. <laughs> Not 50. seems like 50 years ago in internet time. Right. It's still the same cruddy language, but now suddenly it's popular. So it didn't even get a chance to be. It, it was never good, right? And, and then it sat there for years doing nothing until people even noticed it. Uh, but now, you know, people need to get work done. Like, like they, they need to, <laughs> you need to use JavaScript. So they want to transform the language into something that sucks less. Uh, and this happened even before CoffeeScript, which we'll talk about in a second. This happened, you know, as soon as people started having to use JavaScript. It's all right, well, I got to write JavaScript and DHTML is cool and I can do all these cool transformations and all this dynamic stuff or whatever. But you know what I would like? I would like if it worked like the language that I'm used to. So I would like if it had a class-based inheritance instead of prototype-based inheritance. And I'd really like a nice way to define classes and methods. And I'd really like to be able to subclass stuff. And I really like to be able to define properties and, and do things without polluting the global namespace with variables and, and all these other tricks that they learn. Like, so that they very quickly started building this other language on top of JavaScript. And they went by all sorts of different names and different APIs. And everyone who made any sort of library, like, here's a library for validating forms. So we're also going to define our own class and object system. And here's how you define a class in our system. And here's how you define an object. And here's how you do inheritance, right? And then, you know, seven different people did that. So if you're using prototype, they had one system. And right. if you're using, you know, something else... Uh, but, but what they did do was add the APIs people actually wanted to use because the DOM API, the native DOM API, who the W3C defined that or whoever defined that, it stinks. It was just a huge verbose thing that nobody ever wanted to type and it was just, you know, inscrutable and had no convenience functions and it was just, it was just bad. So, that, that, you know, people were wrapping the DOM 10 different ways to Sunday, you know. <laughs> they knew, like, listen, we know you're never going to use a DOM API, but here's these nice little wrapper functions and give that a try. Uh, and jQuery is the big one there, like, they did their own object system and they did all the other stuff, but in service of saying, don't write to the DOM, write to jQuery. Uh, and we're going to define a really convenient API that you can use that it looks like magic. And so now we're at the point today where people know jQuery, but they don't know JavaScript. Right. There, someone did a presentation about that. I think it was like a jQuery problem or something. I Googled for it for a while and I couldn't find it. But it's basically that you're raising a breed of programmers who think that jQuery is what they're programming and have no idea there's this language under there called JavaScript that has its own rules and you know, works in its own way. You know, that's like the JavaScript is like the assembly code. Uh, and CoffeeScript is another example, taking it even farther. And what's that other one that the cappuccino guys do? Objective-J, I think it's called, where they're saying, look, the language is so irredeemably bad <laughs> that you're just going to type text right. that we're going to parse <laughs> with our own little parser written in JavaScript, turn into JavaScript for you, and then execute that. So they're basically defining an entirely different language, not just a new API, not just a wrapper for other things, but an entirely new language. It's so bad is the underlying language is like, don't even type in that language. Type essentially a big honking <laughs> string. And we will, we will take your big honking string and turn it into something. All right. Um, and that gets into all the talks about bridges and everything, like, you know, when you're stepping through the debugger and, you know, Firebug or whatever, WebKit, uh, JavaScript debugger, that's a JavaScript debugger. That's not a CoffeeScript debugger. It's not a jQuery debugger. God forbid you ever step into a jQuery function. You'll, you know, there be dragons. You do not want to be into that code, right? If you have some sort of problem in the middle of jQuery, you know, even when it's not minim uh, minified or anything like that, they just highlight the problems of, of bridges and stuff. And CoffeeScript and, and Objective-J, similar type things. Like, you know, you're not going to get... Uh, Apple or Google or whoever to build a CoffeeScript debugger into the, into their browser and, and, unless you really take over the world with your new language that you made up that eventually compiles into JavaScript. 
uh, Google does even worse, but they do Java that compiles into JavaScript. I don't, I don't, don't even think about how they debug that, but that's, that's Google's problem. So the, the moral of the story is that every existing popular language has something terrible about it, or many, many things terrible about it. And it's usually really easy for developers to see what's wrong with this language. Not, not the APIs, not what you can do with it. You know, people like these things, but just like the language. Isolate the language itself and, and say, is there anything bad about the language taken in isolation? And there always is. And, and it seems like as these languages have stagnated and been tied to these platforms and, and APIs for years and years, we've, you know, made little advances along the sidelines and everything and, you know, academic circles, research circles, but even just trying things out for real with, you know, little niche languages and stuff like that, we sort of collectively decided on what is good. And then when we collectively decide on what is good, we can look at the language and say, well, this thing doesn't have this good thing, which we've all pretty much agreed. It takes a long time to agree on this. It takes, you know, sometimes years and years for everyone to agree that something is good, but eventually most people agree. So I have a little list of things that I think that collectively programmers have agreed are good things. Plus or minus applicability. Obviously, Everything I list, someone's going to say, well, if you're writing a device driver, all that stinks. You know, obviously, you pick the language appropriate for a context. So I'm, t- I'm speaking mostly of the highest of the high levels because languages only get higher level over time, not lower level. So the lower level languages retain their roles and in, in the levels of abstraction where they work best. But the top of the, of the stack, the highest level languages that people most commonly write in just keep getting higher level. And that's the place where the action is. That's the place where the most language advancement happens. So, uh, so things we've decided are good. Like we've decided memory management is good. Because even though, you know, at the lower levels, yes, you do need to manage memory. <laughs> you know, someone's got to manage memory manually underneath there. Someone's got to do it. Even if you're just writing the VM for your JavaScript engine, someone has to deal with it. But if you're writing an application, you don't want to deal with that. So if you have some language that doesn't have memory management, it starts to look a little bit creaky, especially if you're writing like an application where it's like, dude clicks the button and then this thing happens. You know, like, do I have to manage memory to connect the dude clicks the button and then something happens thing? I'm not, <laughs> I'm not writing device drivers. I'm not writing a, a VM for a language. Right. I don't have to deal with memory management. Native strings. Pretty much everyone has agreed that native strings are a good thing. You know, well, we don't want to add strings to C because it's just a byte array and blah, blah, blah. No, native Unicode strings. At this point, if you don't, your language doesn't have native Unicode strings, some poor sucker has got to make a library that does. And then it's just a big hairy mess. And then you have two different competing libraries and you get, you know, what, what, are, what were they called in MFC? They had the you know, you know, wide character strings and all sorts of, you know, it's just a big mess. Native, <laughs> native Unicode strings have to be in the language because they're so darn useful. I think we, that most people have agreed at this point for high-level languages, native regular expressions are a good thing. If not native regular expressions, then at least a library that implements them. Native ones are nicer because then you don't have to take your regular expressions and say, oh, I don't like regular expressions. I'm gonna, you know, they're in strings now. It's just a string constant. JavaScript does that uh, to an extent. But it's nice to have native regular expressions with a native syntax because they're so darn useful and so common. that you don't have to be calling through the library functions for them. And you certainly don't want to have to load a third-party library to do with regular expressions. Uh, native objects and classes, not to get into the OO procedural debate functional programming all that stuff but if you're going to have something that's sort of like objects and classes and you're you know that's going to be like the way you do modularization in your code make it part of the language don't make it so that everyone has to sort of roll their own thing and javascript would say hey we, we have our own object system you know we've got and we've got our own inheritance systems but it's one that people have decided they don't want to use like prototype inheritance people may love it and think it's cool and everything but everyone who wants to program in javascript is like great so how do i make a class and that's kind of a shame for the people who love prototype based inheritance but 
the bottom line is that that's what people want. And, you know, every single library bends over backwards to make something that at least looks a little bit like objects and classes, even when under the covers, it's not quite the same thing. Uh, one I'll add on here that uh, these are getting progressively more controversial, I think, uh, is it named parameters. Positional parameters suck. I think we probably all agree on that. No one wants a function with 27 parameters that have to be in exactly the right order, and you've got to pass nulls or zeros for the ones you don't include and stuff like that. Names parameters. If, you, if your language doesn't have name parameters, people will basically invent them. You know, for JavaScript passing in, uh, you know, the little uh, JavaScript object notation for, you know, name value pairs and stuff like that. It's not name parameters are not really native to the language, but there's a, there's a data structure that looks just like name parameters, and that's what everybody uses. Uh, but it means that order is not important, and you don't have to remember what the seventh argument is and what the twelfth argument is and stuff like that. People want names attached to the parameters. The code reads better. Objective-C has a half solution where it's like, all right, we got name parameters, but you still have to put them in order. And if you don't need to put one, you got to put a null for it. And it's, it's a C-based language. You forgive it a lot. But I think we can all agree things to have to have name parameters. Uh, succinct syntax for common operations. That means no boilerplate. That means it, as, no matter how theoretically pure your language is, no one wants to deal with templates or like if you want to make a class, put these 80 lines of codes in there and then put your one line of code that's specific to your thing. People don't want things to be verbose and wordy and just huge. They want things to be tight and small. Because if they're not if they're not tight and small, like in JavaScript where you got to do these little anonymous function closures and everything to get variables inside a scope, they will invent a syntax that is succinct to replace your crappy one. You know, it, that's getting to, go Java, uh, to CoffeeScript where people are sick of typing the word function out. What, that's, you know, Huffman coding in, in the parlance of uh, Larry Wall. <laughs> people are going to be typing the word function eight bazillion times. Don't spell it out function. You know, CoffeeScript goes with a little arrow because it's much faster to type. It, the things that are commonly used should be fast to type and, and small, right. you know, and not giant words. Um, do I have any other good ones here? Some sort of acknowledgement of concurrency, I think we've all agreed, is good because languages without any acknowledgement that concurrency exists you end up having problems with it. Like, it doesn't mean you have to be, you know, super concurrent like Erlang or whatever and your entire language is based around that, but an acknowledgement that it exists and some native mechanism for dealing with it. Even if it's just like a couple of primitive native... I would say that if you have to have a couple of primitives from mutexes and stuff like that, then people have to kind of invent some sort of concurrency thing on top of it. I mean, even if it's like implicit concurrency, just some acknowledgement that it exists. Even if you don't even implement it, just have a language where you can say, okay our language construct that looks like this may not have any actual concurrency, but the implementation is free to do it concurrently because order is not guaranteed. You know, something like that. I think we've all agreed is a good thing because languages that don't have that, it's really hard to add concurrency after the fact. Um, so pick a language, you can find some of these things that are missing from it, often frustratingly so. Uh, and the question is, well, if, we all, if we all agree that these things are great and, you know, over the years, we've decided this is what languages should be, and we keep adding new things to this list. Why can't we just make a new language that does that? Well, a language in isolation is pretty darn useless. If you don't have anything to do with that language, if you don't have an API to write for, you can't make uh, programs for a particular platform, you're kind of stuck, which is a lot of the reason you see like the CoffeeScript and, and Objective-J stu stuff. They could invent those languages, and they thought, hey, it's great. I made a new language called Objective-J, uh, and it looks like this, and it's really fun to use. And they write like, great, well, what can I do with that? We say, well, you can write web applications. You're like, I can't write web applications. My web browser doesn't run Objective-Say. So, well, we'll take your Objective-Say and compile it into JavaScript. And then suddenly you have a use for this cool new language. CoffeeScript is similar to that. Or, you know, Rails will we'll make a new API. Since no one seems to be using Ruby now, but we think it's really cool, here's this great new framework. And if you want to use the framework, use the language. Uh, 
the next question is, why can't we just add these cool features to existing languages? Well, it's not, it's not easy to add features to languages because you've got that, you know, installed base and the people who are currently using the language. Just look what happened with trying to make a ECMAScript 4, which is going to be the successor to JavaScript, which was going to add all sorts of cool, wizzy stuff that a lot of which is from that previous list. Add that to JavaScript. But then there's like, you know, it's an open standard and there's standards bodies and, and people with interest in keeping the language the way it is. And then you can't get people to agree about what should be added and what shouldn't. And that whole process kind of ground to a halt and is really difficult to add stuff to an existing language. And, and even if you get everyone to agree, it takes forever for them to be useful. Like if you made, here's the new version of JavaScript and it's got these great new features. In fact, it's got half of jQuery built into it. Well, you can't use that until some you know huge percentage of the population has upgraded all their browsers to the browser that has the fancy new version of JavaScript in it. And, you know, and it takes years and years for this to happen. I mean, look, look at how long it's taken uh, for .NET to be viable because you had all those PCs out there that either couldn't run .NET or didn't have .NET installed, and you didn't want your application to be the one that says, oh, here's my cool new application, but first you've got to download this 20 megabyte .NET runtime, and then, you know, it's a, it's a big hang-up where people don't want to download your application. And then you have all those machines in China that are still running Windows XP, and uh, it's, just, it's just a mess. So it's really, really difficult to add features to existing languages, and even when you can, you have to wait so long to use them that by the time you get to use them, Maybe you, all the features you added are too little and you think the language is crappy again. And so we're basically forced to suffer through using crappy ancient languages you know, as the rest of technology advances quickly. Uh, you know, and, and even within the browser stuff advances faster than languages like the CSS DOM and, J yeah. and JavaScript APIs, that, those are rapidly advancing. But the JavaScript language... Not so much. Like, look how fast, you know, new versions of CSS are supported and new DOM methods. And this DOM method is native now. And we're adding local database support. And we're doing all sorts of cool stuff that you can write to. The APIs advance quickly, but the JavaScript language is just stuck. I mean, you know, it, there have been tweaks here and there. And obviously, the implementation is way, way faster. But the language itself is the same old crappy self it always was, more or less. And so here we are. We just wait with crossed fingers. And we just hope that whatever the next hit platform or API is, that it's going to use a better language, right? And, and that, that, that's not just wishful, wishful thinking. It's happened before. So like when, when the CGI stuff came along, that sort of ushered in a new wave of, you know, dynamic languages with the Ps. You had the Perl, Python, PHP. Uh, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't make those viable to the C programmers. Say, hey, stop doing your systems programming in, in C and C++. Try Perl. And they'd go, no, thanks. You know, but <laughs> and see, when CGI comes along and the P languages yeah. have, oh, it's a new platform, and with this new platform, we're going to get to use better languages. And since there's no incumbent to unseat, and so we, we don't have to convince the C and C++ programmers to come over, we'll just get these new guys. Hey, new guys, cool new language, try this out, write web applications. And same thing with Rails and Ruby. Uh, Ruby was not going to be to take over the world. You know, it was not going to replace uh, you know, C++ or even C Sharp as the Windows programming language. But if they make this new thing where there's no incumbent, then Ruby suddenly can become popular and Cocoa with Objective-C and so on and so forth. And of course, it helps when you have a language that's controlled by a single vendor like C Sharp, uh, where C and C++, you know, with its standard versions that take a million years to come out, doesn't change that quickly. But C Sharp has changed really fast. Like it was introduced out of nowhere as kind of a Java clony thing or whatever. And then they've advanced. You know, they're versioning, I think they've versioned their language like C Sharp 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, Since a single vendor controls it, they don't have to get the okay from anyone else. They just like, you want to add a cool new feature to language? Well, we're controlling it. We're going to add a new feature, add a new feature. Uh, Apple does something similar with Objective-C. 
maybe a little bit slower where they took it easy in the beginning because they were just getting everybody on board Objective-C. But then it's like, guess what? Properties, synthesized methods and the dot syntax and you know, fast enumeration and uh, and blocks. And, you know, I mean, they're adding stuff to C. That's pretty crazy. It's kind of more of a library thing. But if if you have a single vendor in control of a language, it can advance more rapidly than the standards-based languages. But then, you know, it's the other side of that coin is that if it's not a standard-based language, people are afraid to use it because they're like, I don't want to be under Apple's thumb, so I'm not going to do Objective-C, and I don't want to be under Microsoft's thumb, so I'm not going to do C-sharp. And even if it's like an open standard, it's de facto controlled by one person. So there's always a tension there between the development of the language and uh, how fast it's going to move on. Hmm. So, now finally, finally, I think we can talk about Perl. This oh, is this is this is the interesting part for me. This is the part where you get to participate and express your disdain. People love to rants when you go on the rants like that. They love it. Last time. That's what people tune in for. But we, maybe we should do our spot. You want to do the sponsor now or now or after this? Yeah, you should go for it. Worldview. We've talked about these guys before. This is the uh, totally addictive take on email reporting from Campaign Monitor. Basically, and we have a lot of people, I think, in the audience who. They do newsletters. They have their own business. They have a small. They have. They do a website. Maybe they're a software developer. They have clients. So this is from Campaign Monitor. When you send a newsletter, they'll show you on a map in real time. Whenever somebody opens the newsletter, because that's the thing, you send out a newsletter. You're like, well, who read it? Oh, thirty-four people read it. Who? Where are they? What's going on? Now they actually show you this in in real time on a map, and it's very. You're talking about things like JavaScript. A lot of JavaScript here. But it's all seamless. It's gorgeous. You got to check this out. Go to campaignmonitor.com slash worldview. Whenever somebody opens your, your newsletter, when they click on a link, when they forward it to a buddy, in, in real time, it shows up on this map. Are you looking at it right now? It's very cool. It'll also show you on Facebook when it's mentioned, when it's mentioned on Twitter, instantaneously. And uh, it's free for every email campaign you send. And you can you can get started for free too. So go check them out. Check these guys out. Campaignmonitor.com slash worldview thanks very much to those guys they're really smart for advertising that feature because i guarantee you that is the the feature that the people who who purchase the service are most excited about and use you can just see people staring at that map you know because <laughs> if you're a marketing person and, and you're going to send out direct <laughs> communication like this is what you want like if you just click the button and then go home it's not exciting you're going to sit there and stare at that map and be like now now the world will see what i have to say and then exactly that is a very smart feature. Very cool. And that's just a demo, so go go try this out. Anyway, uh, we got to talk about this Pearl thing. Now, you, it has been revealed here, not only two two things that are, I think, going to be shocking to most of the listening audience. The first one shocking is... they've listened to other shows. We've talked about it before. Two things that are going to be shocking to the listening audience. The first one is uh, that you you your job, you are a Pearl programmer. So that's shock True. number one. And shock number two is that, at least and this is the part that we're going to have to talk about, my understanding is you can actually read the Perl after you've written it. You can go back and read what you've written and, and understand it, which is my understanding is that that's not possible with Perl at all, even in the best uh, situation. So I'd like for you to address both of those points. Uh, please begin. Well, uh, first I want to talk about something that you said on a past show about Objective-C. But I think it was on, on the, the previous show where you were talking about the square brackets. And you uh, talked about it in a couple like, of shows too, and you can't stand that. I don't like this. Yeah, so you've obviously you've done a little bit of Objective-C development. Uh, yeah. And you like what the language can do for you. You like the, op- the resulting applications. You know, you like the platform. You like iOS. You like Mac OS X. Yeah. But 
the language itself you don't like. And you brought up the square brackets because 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 you think they're ugly. I don't like this. I don't like the look of it. I'm I am a very uh, I care a lot, at least on on the computer. I care a lot about how things look visually. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a stickler for fonts. I've written a lot of articles on HiveLogic, for example, about fonts and what fonts I. It's it's you know the editor that I use is almost secondary to the font that I'm using to 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 do code in. I mean, I'm very the way that things look, the way the language looks, and this this again, this is why I'm such a big fan of uh, programming languages like Ruby because they look it looks great. I mean, even even the people who hate the Ruby most and I'm I'm talking about anybody who prefers Python, they're the biggest the biggest anti-rubyists out there in in the world. Even they admit that Ruby looks nice. I mean, they'll say Python's better. I'm, you know, we don't need to get into that on this show. But even they'll admit that it is a nice looking a nice looking language. For me that typing in in something that, that you know, creating code that looks nice I'd, I'd, tr- I, you know, I love that. So that matters to me. There's a lot of people who are, you know, laughing, saying, oh, who, who cares about that? It's the power of the language that you want. And, and, and if that's the case, then I, I think they'd get in line with you and then start writing, uh, writing Perl because you can do stuff in Perl that's just kind of crazy. So, so the point I want to bring up about this is two things. First, that aesthetics in programming languages, even though it's subjective, I think you could probably identify some themes and i think one of the themes especially for the people who like ruby is that non-word characters are ugly and word characters are not right so anytime you get a non-word characters anything that's not you know a through z numbers or underscores maybe hyphens uh, anytime you get anything that's not one of those characters it's it's noisy and it's ugly you know basically any character you wouldn't see in prose or even stuff like commas sometimes or periods they don't like right so the square brackets, they fall under your, your uh, unkind gaze because square brackets don't appear in regular prose almost ever. And they're certainly not word characters, and they're actually kind of like have sharp pointy edges, right? Um, my, my understanding, by the way, as an aside, is that you can use dot notation instead of brackets in Objective-C. And I was talking to the guy who wrote Notesy, which is a great iOS app. He told me this on the Daily Edition earlier in the week. I'd, I'd heard that, but then you're falling into something that's non-standard. You're like the one guy who does it that way, which is well, another I- really good topic I want to talk to you about perhaps on this show or another show about whether you adapt the language to your own particular style or whether you adapt your style to the language of choice or a third option is you adopt whatever the corporate style is for the project and or task that your team team rather that you're working on anyway that could be another topic well apple has been pushing sort of pushing the dot syntax even within apple there are people who still won't use it and i bet if you were to look at apple's code there'd be big divisions like these are the dot people and these are the non-dot people i suspect the old school guys don't like the dot syntax but apple's been pushing it a lot like if you go to wwc a lot of the sessions the official party line is we invented dot notation so you could use it. It's not like we're going to invent it and then nobody should use it. You should use it and they will make a good show of saying we here at Apple are trying to use it too with our new you know, stuff. At the very least, they want you to use the app property, at synthesize and stuff like that. Like they're, they're, they're pushing that as a modernization of the language. Right. Um, and partly because I think it does look nicer, you know, fewer n- non-word characters, right? So the point I want to bring up about 
non-word characters. This is the aside that I meant to get to last time about the Joint Strike Fighter. Uh, I put a link in the show notes to, to this. The Joint Strike Fighter was a U.S. government project to make a new airplane to replace several existing models of airplanes through several branches of the armed forces. So they wanted to replace a, a bunch of planes in the Navy, the Air Force, and the Marines with a single new plane that could be adapted to several different purposes. That's actually an aside. That's not the, the point I'm trying to get about making one plane to replace many different one, other ones. But the main thing is they had a competition between the defense contractors and said, you want to be the, the company that makes a joint strike fighter? Well, you know, here's some amount of money and bring us two prototypes. And, you know, it was the, the competition between basically Boeing and Lockheed were the two big ones that were uh, uh, the only people who had the money and skills basically to compete. Uh, so it was actually a contract for the government that, didn't, that had more than one bidder. But anyway... Uh, they said, you know, bring us what you think is, is the best suited plane for this, and then we as the government will take a look at what you brought us and go bring each one through a series of tests and decide which one we're going to spend, you know, bazillions of dollars on over the next decade, two decades, three decades to replace all of our planes. And there was a, a PBS show. I think it was a Nova thing. But anyways, a link to it in the show notes. I don't know if you can actually watch the video. It's a very old show, so I think maybe you can get the video online. But if not, you can maybe see if it comes on TV again. Uh but it was a documentary showing the competition between Boeing and Lockheed, which is an excellent show. If you have an hour of time and you can find this thing, you should watch it. It's really awesome to watch this show. But the most fascinating aspect of it was that at a certain point in the program, they started to talk about uh, the difference between these two planes. And it was something that would be on anyone's mind watching the, the show up to that point, but not discussed. And then they came out and discussed it, which was that Boeing's entry was uglier than Lockheed's. The, the plane itself, if you were to put them side by side, like right. you know it from the second you see it. Lockheed's looks cool, like a little spaceship, like something from Star Wars. And Boeing's is kind of, you know, homely looking. It's got a big mouth for an air intake, and it's kind of stub-nosed, and it just, it just looks uglier. Now, this is a competition. Billions and billions of dollars are on the line. The security of your entire nation, the safety of your people. There's going to be people flying these planes, people repairing them. Like, the looks of these planes, you would think, could anything possibly be less important? This is life or death situation. Things that matter are like performance, cost, safety, you know, uh, effectiveness, the, the, the performance of the actual plane itself, the durability. Does looks have anything to do with it? Anything at all? And as the people discuss very openly in the show, they can say, you know, well, looks of the plane really shouldn't matter, but there's an old saying in aviation that if it looks right, it'll fly right. Mm. Now, now, now that saying... The, the origin of that saying is it's like that's just like a massive rationalization for the idea that people and men in particular are hardwired to like things that are attractive. It doesn't mean the plane has to look like you know the body of a woman, although it often does, but that people like beautiful things, and you can their rational mind can say to them all that other stuff about how everything else is more important and how this plane looks means absolutely nothing. The bottom line is that the better looking plane usually wins when there's a competition for, you know, which thing is going, going to get a contract. And I'm not saying that's why uh, the, the winner, uh, the Lockheed won uh, this, this uh, contract. I don't think I'm spoiling anything to, to say that, but <laughs> Lockheed eventually did win because they had the better looking plane, right? There are many other reasons that, that uh, they won the contract, but the fact that looks was acknowledged to be a factor They're basically saying we can't help it. We're silly meat bags who love beautiful things. And, Right or wrong, looks are going to be a factor. And we can rationalize it and say, even if we had never seen these planes and had just seen the numbers, and we just knew based on the experience that Lockheed makes great planes or whatever, you know, blah, blah, Lockheed was probably going to win no matter what. But the fact that looks are, you know, acknowledged to be an important factor in that thing, there's no hope of 
aesthetics not being a factor in something like programming languages, where much less is at stake, right? Uh, I think this reveals, you know, I hope the people, everyone involved, is self-aware enough to realize that this is this is a flaw in reasoning, and they shouldn't go back to if it looks right, it flies right. It's the old saying that my pappy says. Your, your pappy was was excusing his stupid illogical behavior with a catchy saying. Like that's an acknowledgement of you being wrong. You can't use that to support your argument. No, if it looks right, it does not fly right. Things, a lot of things that look awful fly great, and a lot of things that look great do not fly at all. It's not <laughs> the saying makes no sense. So to bring that back to programming languages. Yeah, people pick a lot based on their aesthetics. But, you know, it shouldn't be a factor, even though it is. Uh, luckily, with programming languages, there are so many other factors that even that dominate looks that, you know, we can't even get decent languages regardless of, regardless is not a word, sorry, regardless of <laughs> the looks of the language. You can't, we can't get a good one that has all the features we want because of other things that are involved. But, you know, when we're left to, you know, have petty squabbles about, which one of the crappy languages that we're forced to use is better than the other, we fall back on looks. Uh, and again, it gets back to the fewer non-word characters, the better. So I don't like discussions about looks of languages because I think it's mostly moot. With programming languages, at least you can say, all right, maybe it has nothing to do with looks, but a lot of these non-word characters I need to hold on shift to use, and they're not, you know, they're, they're, they have to take my fingers off the home keys. So they're like, actual rational reasons where you can talk about curly braces are bad or square brackets are bad or any other character that I have to stop typing, t- stop touch typing, touch typing for and do a corded keystroke to get that's bad. Mm. Uh, so at least you have that little thing in there. But, but the aesthetics of languages, even though you can find that common thread of non-word characters being ugly, it really depends on what you're used to a lot too uh, and where you're coming from. So with Perl, I would imagine the non-word characters that are most offensive to everyone are things like the dollar sign, which is on all the variables. No one likes that. The at sign, percent sign. That's, you know, the, the fact that every identifier has some sort of prefix on it. Uh, people don't like that. Now, if you're coming from shell programming, that's not a big deal because in shell, it's exactly the same thing. In fact, that's where the syntax comes from. Or even, you know, basic had stuff like that on it too. But if you're coming from C, where your identifiers are basically unadorned, you see that as noise and you think it's ugly. Mm-hmm. Um, so getting into Perl specifically, uh, it's got all the prefixes and the variables people don't like. Uh, but another reason Perl comes in for the ugliness thing is that it was the first language to first language to really become popular that had native regular expressions in it that programmers use. Obviously, regular expressions were out there, and you know, command line utilities like grep and stuff like that. But this was the first time that a real programmer, quote unquote, was forced to see regular expressions because he was doing his program in C or C++ and some dude came along and said, I'm writing a CGI application. It's Perl and check this out. And, they, and then it's the first time they see or deal with regular expressions and what they think is a real program and not just like some shell thing that the sysadmins do, which is beneath them. And they're like, what the hell is that? Now, as we all know today, regular expressions look like that for a reason. It's a compact representation of something that would, that would be much uglier and longer if you had to write your own you know, state machine or you know, uh, <laughs> what, what, you write your own regular expression engine. You'd basically end up either reinventing regular expressions yourself badly or writing a huge string of spaghetti go to do what regular expressions do. So regular expressions look kind of like line noise, but they're, they look like that for a reason and they're useful. And every language nowadays has them and recognizes that. But Perl was the first. So the impression of Perl is, Look at all those freaking dollar signs. And, oh, my God, this program is just one big regular expression. And I've never seen regular <laughs> expressions before. And I do, I do not understand why regular expressions are so inscrutable to me. It's just this horrible looking thing. Uh, you know, so 
your reputation, you know, first impressions may, mean a, bit, a lot. And the fact that Pearl was the first one to come in with regular expressions is like, boom, you're labeled, the bozo bit is flipped, you are the language that nobody can read. Uh, and yeah, it had the shell-like syntax and everything. Now, it's interesting that this type of, you know, prejudice against languages with weird stuff, it's interesting to compare uh, the end keyword in Ruby, where, you, you know, instead of having curly braces, curly braces are bad because they're non-word characters and you have to hold down shift to type them, right? But end is a lot longer than curly braces, isn't it? And the real programmers, quote-unquote, from the olden days, C, C++ guys, they had curly braces too. Yeah, Curly braces weren't a big deal to them. Uh, and again, it seems like bad Huffman coding to take probably the most commonly typed keyword in your entire language, end in the case of Ruby, and make it three characters long instead of one. Even if you count the quarter key stroke as two, like hold down shift and hold down the, you know, the, the bracket key, end is still longer to type. So it seems like if you're going to be like, oh, you know, what's going to win? Is, is aesthetics in terms of making me type too much stuff going to win? Or, or is aesthetics in terms of non-word characters going to win? And Pearl basically didn't get dinged for having curly braces. And Ruby didn't really get dinged for having the end keyword too much. But nowadays... If you were to say what looks cleaner, they're going to say well, Ruby looks cleaner, even though it's got these little end keywords littering up the entire thing. But it doesn't have the curly braces. You're like, well, I have to have end, but I don't have to have the opening curly, you know. Uh, so people deciding what it is that makes something ugly or not, whether it's the non-word characters or having to type some long thing, that tends to flip-flop based on the context. And the same people have a different opinion when looking at different languages at different times. So for, for Perl... You don't like it because it's ugly and you make the jokes about it being a read-only and stuff like that. But there are other things that give it a bad reputation, but that most people probably don't know about. I think my, my description of why people don't like Perl pretty much covers the basis for anyone who hasn't actually done any programming in Perl. Where they'll say, I don't like it, it's ugly, regular expressions are unreadable, the end, more or less. Do you have any actual, more actual objections coming from someone who doesn't really write in Perl? Uh, against the Perl language. Yeah, I think I think it all really does come down to just legibility. How how it's a it's a joke. People in the chat room are even talking about it that it's it's a tough language. And also, I mean, it, are there you know people will complain? And I'm not sure they, this isn't a knock against the language directly, but there are the, where where are the really awesome frameworks uh, written in Perl that people should be using? Where where does Perl move into the the next generational kind of thinking? I mean, sure, it's great if you want to, you know, write something that will parse text and turn it into HTML for you. But what what are people using Perl for in the real world? Why doesn't it get the kind of attention outside of those uber geeky sysadmin type circles? I feel like that Perl got this reputation based on the things we've already discussed many years ago. And that's when people stopped looking at it, mm. right? So the fact that you don't know the answers to any of those questions doesn't mean that there aren't answers. It just means that the last, you, you, you have removed Perl from your mind in the past and haven't looked at it since, and, and neither have any other people, so it doesn't come up anymore, and you just assume there's nothing else there. It, se- but- it seems like a dinosaur of a language. Now, I mean, I'm partially... Right. I, I, truth be told, I do know the value of Perl. I can write some Perl code, although probably uh, uh, not very much anymore. I certainly do appreciate it as a language. I'm I'm kind of playing devil's advocate here, and I'm I'm playing up the stereotypes of the language 
no, but mainly I think because you're, you're well, representative, though. Well, yeah, and I think so, and and that's that's kind of wanna why I want to hear your take. Would you would you be saying this? Do you think if you weren't right? I mean, you you write Pearl eight hours a day. Is that I mean, or or yeah, yeah. that's so, that's that's surprising. So before I go and tell you what's good about Pearl, I'm going to tell you the things that are bad about it that I think are much more significant than, than the things we just discussed. Okay, because I think Pearl got dismissed long before. It got dismissed by the mass market long before the mass market discovered what was truly bad about it, <laughs> right? So the things that are actually, you know, because I think that aesthetic stuff, as evidenced by Objective C, like that, that stuff you can get over. Like regular expressions, everyone's gotten over already. So regular expressions, even though, you know, everyone will agree, okay, I, get, I understand regular expressions now. I see why they're useful and right. I see why they look like line noise. And they're in every freaking language, so you can't pinpoint Perl for it. But still, Perl gets the, the blame for being unreadable because of it. And the dollar signs are like the square brackets. Like, if there was some reason to keep using Perl and it was really popular, people get over it. Like, you get over the square brackets. Maybe not you, but most people basically, you know, grin and bear it with the square brackets because of the other advantages. So now, those and, and things to, that we to, just talked about. Just to respond to you really quickly, uh, if if I was if I was serious about writing an iOS app or a macOS ten app in in today, I would have no problem dealing with it. I probably would eventually get to like it. And there are people who will say, "Oh, the Objective C is beautiful." Maybe it would grow on me, uh, but certainly if if the choice is taken away, if you, if if somebody said, "Oh, you can use Mac Ruby and and just write Ruby code," and of course I would pick that first because that's where my comfort zone is, and because I I like that, I'm comfortable with that. But yeah, I mean, it, you deal with it. But is that what you're saying about Perl? You're not saying that. Well, so so what I'm so what I'm saying is that those, those little things. I think would not have been enough to keep people away. What kept people away was that it, it was the standard bearer for things that freak people out about syntax and aesthetics and then people moved on right. before they could find the real problems. Here are the things that are actually problems with Perl. And the only people who know that these are actual problems with Perl, the people who have seriously been developing with Perl, because A, those people have gotten over or never been affected by whatever, you know, Perl is ugly thing. Like either they knew irregular expressions before or they or they just got used to them and came to like them. They dealt with the dollar signs or they actually came to like them or whatever. Those weren't the issues. Here are the actual issues with Perl. Now, the first big one is that Perl is kind of like JavaScript in that it doesn't do the things that people want it to do with respect to object systems. Mm. So it gives you this little mini construction kit from which you can build what a more traditional object system might look like. Uh, and many people did. So they took This was Perl 5, which introduced these object-oriented mechanisms. They took this little toolkit and they said, okay, well, I want objects to look like this. And they would write a little like the equivalent of like all the, but you know, prototype and jQuery and all that stuff that they, they build their own little object maker thing inside their framework. Well, everybody in Perl built their own little object maker thing and all of them were slightly different and all of them were slightly incompatible. Uh, and you know, over time people came up with new ones. So I'm going to do objects like this. So I'm going to do objects like that. Or, I'm going to do them like this. And here's how you build a class in my thing. Or I'm going to do this and I'm going to make a, you know, a source filter and I'm going to add new keywords and I'm going to do this syntax and I'm going to make my objects inside out. Do you even know what that is? No, no one outside Perl probably knows what inside out objects are. But uh, all sorts of, you know, I'm going to make my objects out of arrays because it's faster. And I'm, right. I'm going to make, you know, all crazy sorts of things, you know. The problem was that that leaves you with a huge library of code. Everyone, every, and everyone's using their own little object construction kit. And they're either not compatible with each other or it's like, well, why do I have to have 17 different object construction kits in here in my, in my one application when I really just want one? This is something that should have been built into the language. Now, it's bad that it wasn't because you get the situation where there's a million different object systems, Right. But on the other hand, well, actually, I'll say that for the part where I do good stuff. Let's just start with the bad. Bad, okay. there's, there's not one way to do objects, and people did a million of them, and it was a big, hairy mess, and continues to be a big, hairy mess to this day. Um, 
the other thing is that Pearl, I guess we have to start getting into the, the, the good at this point, because I think that's probably probably the biggest bad thing about Pearl, and, and I guess the implementation too. And Pearl was written as a big giant C program by one dude, and that one dude rewrote it. Uh, but really, that's not, you know, Ruby has the same problem to some degree. Like being a big hairy C program under the covers that has problems. That's why projects like JRuby and uh, Maglev and all these other, you know, Rubinius, is that how you pronounce it? All these yep, other VMs. Yeah. When when your language is defined basically by, you know, how does the Ruby executable behave? This Ruby C program written by a couple of guys that defines my language. Like it's not there's no language spec. There's no language standard. It's like we wrote this program. You feed it source code that we say is Ruby source code, and it executes it for you. Uh, your language can end up being hamstrung by the interpreter, and that's true of Perl in some respect. Because any C program that's long lived gets crafty or whatever. And at a certain point you have trouble extending and advancing language because the internals are gross looking. Uh, and Perl has been working towards improving that and so has Ruby and so have all the other ones. In fact, sometimes they say, you know, we're not even going to deal with the real Ruby VM. We're going we're to use the JVM and write our own thing on top of it and just, you know, you got that whole thing going on. But that's the other thing that's, that hamstrings languages like uh, Perl and Ruby. Mm. Um, the, the good thing about all this bad stuff is that the fact that there was no object system built in and everyone built their own little object system it, it it basically became like a breeding ground or I don't know what you'd call it, like a Genesis project for object systems, right? So the first dude to write an object system in Perl is like, can make it like C++ and then Java comes out and let's make some sort of like Java type thing on top of it. And then all these weird experiments that no one had even heard of with the inside out stuff and trying to protect variables with closures because we don't have real variable privacy and uh, designed by contract and all sorts of crazy approaches like, Everything you can possibly imagine was tried. And what would happen is that the better ones would squish the old ones. So, like, this would be, you know, hey, I made a cool object system. Okay, no, I made a cooler one. Everyone forget about that old one because it sucks. And then they'll make a cooler one and they would forget about that one and they'd try something else and they'd say, okay, we're going to make uh, method makers and, and class generators and, and a whole class of things that just let you make accessor methods in 50 different ways. And we're going to try to, you know, layer on a type system and we're going to do tons and tons of experimentation, which you couldn't do. If this the language came with like this is how you do objects, which for the most part Ruby comes with like here's how you do objects in Ruby, here's how you do attributes, getters, and setters. Excuse me. Python was a little bit different in that Python had like new objects and old objects where they had one way to do objects, and people said, well, this is great, but there's some common things that it doesn't do. So they had a new style object, and then they had Python three, right? Perl five just started with that little core of you know an object construction system. We got a simple thing for inheritance, a simple thing for method dispatch. And a simple thing for, you know, the Ruby equivalent of uh, the Perl equivalent of method missing in Ruby and just go nuts. And people did go nuts. Uh, what it's led to is that I think the, the Perl ha- has had and continues to have the largest group of developers doing, quote unquote, advanced stuff in a semi-popular language. If you want to do interesting advanced language type stuff, you can do it on top of Perl because Perl doesn't decide how they're going to do it for you. So, for example, Perl is the only language that I know of where as a community, if you were in the Perl community, it's basically been agreed upon that roles are awesome and better than regular O. Now, do you even know what roles are? Uh, roles within which context? Explain it. Roles, traits. You read the paper on traits. That roles is Perl's name for them. It's a different way of doing, uh, instead of doing inheritance or delegation, it's a, different, it's a different way of factoring out common code. Instead mm. of factoring out code in terms of inheritance or mixing classes or you know, okay. monkey patching or whatever yeah. else you can this is something that most people haven't even heard of unless you're like deep into the Perl community. But at this point, with so much thrashing going on in the Perl community, it, 
you if you were asked to someone who's deep in the Perl community, are roles good or bad, they would say good. And everyone place else, they haven't even heard of it. And this is true of tons of stuff. Like when Ruby was coming out and all the Perl people are bitter because Ruby's being popular and everything. And I don't know if people know this, but have you noticed the similarity? Ruby, it's a gemstone. Perl, it's kind of a shiny thing. Ruby was basically inspired by <laughs> Perl. So with with like the edges shaved. Off. It was, that's I can't people people don't like to to think about that in that relationship, uh, but it's there. You know, you, you wonder about those dollar signs in Ruby. Oh, they're there. <laughs> the little little at sign in front of it. I know you don't use them because they're on globals and stuff, but they're there. Anyway, we won't talk about the lineage, but they were like, look at look at Ruby. We can do this awesome stuff. And look, this is a method missing thing, and we can pass a block to a function, and then it gets like, and you can call it back, and it's this awesome. I mean, and the Perl people are rolling their eyes and be like, oh great, so you discovered that, isn't that awesome? And I mean, and this is stuff that's been in Perl is old hat in Perl, like the auto load and you know dealing with closures and stuff. That's like that was like a decade ago, guys. You know, and then it's the same way the Lisp people are and the Smalltalk people are rolling their eyes <laughs> at, at the Perl people, going, "Oh, that's great! You got this little language where you think you can do this generic programming and and uh, anonymous functions and stuff." Yeah, we had that in the '60s, little boy. You know, I'm getting the dates wrong again. Someone will yell at me, but it's the same type of thing. But the the, the bottom line is that pr- all the features that people are just now discovering that are awesome in Ruby and stuff. Have, have existed for just so many years in Perl and that, that not only have they existed, but they've been just like done to death. We've tried 8 million different ways to do stuff with, uh, you know, closures, 8 million different ways to do things with, uh, you know, auto-generated methods and, and methods being invoke, uh, invoked when there's no such method by that name and just tons of stuff like that. And, you know, yeah, it's going on in like effectively a backwater or a dead end when all the action is happening in Ruby, but it, it's, it's frustrating to Perl people, just like it's frustrating to list people to see people getting excited about features that existed in their language for years. But it, on the other hand, it's good that features that people should have been getting excited about are finally in a language that people are actually using and are popular. It's kind of still kind of frustrating that a lot of the features in Ruby in particular uh, are, are more limited. Like, you know, and every function can take a block. And all right, blocks aren't like procs, but they're kind of similar. But you can make a proc object and... Ruby screwed up a lot of stuff in there, and the Perl guys are going, oh, Ruby, like, why didn't you learn that from Perl? Like, you know, not that the syntax is great or anything, but we've kind of got one construct for an anonymous function and one way to do closures, and we're not limited to just passing one of those to a function, and we don't have this distinction between procs and blocks, and you kind of screwed the pooch on that one, and you really should have copied Perl a little bit better in that regard. Not every language is perfect, but, uh, but, but what I'm getting at here is that Perl has tons of features that people think are super-duper advanced and awesome, that they don't know about because they don't know that much Perl. And because to get at those features in Perl, you had to do stuff that involved lots of dollar signs or esoteric things or whatever. Or the last time they looked at Perl, people in the Perl community had just started playing with that stuff. But at this point, almost everything that every other language is doing, Perl has already done 17 times and discarded the, the eight crappy versions that are onto a much better one. So what I would say to all other languages is to look at what Perl is doing and... You know, if you're making a new language, look at all the stuff that Perl has done because we put in the time, all us little Perl developers over here, to try everything you could possibly imagine, almost all of which were horrible dead ends. Don't do those things. Look at the things that we've agreed upon and figured out that are actually good and useful and go with those. Now, the reason they don't work in Perl is because we're, we're building crap on top of a language. It goes back to that bridge thing, like CoffeeScript and stuff like that. We have a language with an OO system, and the current best Oh, a system that we've come up with uh, called Moose uh, on top of Perl is an awesome object construction kit. 
but it's not native to the language. Mm. It's a library, a huge honking library built on top of the language. And so, yeah, the performance is pretty crappy and the load time is crappy and it's not, you know, it's not native. It's not part of the language. What we're saying to you is if you're making a new language, look at how Moose works more or less and make your language work like that. We're not saying come over and use Perl because we've got this awesome object system. We're going to say, you're, well, hold, you're holding Perl up as the example of the, the right way to do it based on decades of incredibly talented genius programmers who have right, rightly chosen Perl as the best language to use, who've it, invested it's that. It's so that much time research. to make it. This is the right way to do it. There's so a lot just of copy research Perl. going on in languages, but you can't use that. Like Most of the stuff is done in Perl. It's not invented by the Perl community. It was looking at computer science research and research into languages and trying different things. Like the roles thing comes from a paper about traits, which was like a different way to, to factor out code into reusable modules. And we said, all right, let's give that a try. Like the people who are language designers for Perl said that seems like a good idea. In fact, a lot of this was going towards Perl 6, which was going to be you know the next language after Perl 5, uh, which is similar to Perl 5 in spirit, but not in, and a little bit in syntax, but has many new ideas. Uh, we should have a whole different show about Perl 6 and why can't you ship. But anyway, <laughs> uh, those ideas were, were folded into Perl 6. And what happens to Perl 5? People looked up at Perl 6 and go like, oh, you guys are doing that Perl 6 thing over there. But these ideas that you're looking into look like good ideas. And we think we can write that as a Perl 5 library. <laughs> and they did. In fact, a lot of features for Perl 6 were prototyped by saying, okay, you're going to make this new language that has this feature. Well, let's write that in Perl 5 and we'll see how it works when you actually try to use it. And we try to use it and say, actually, you thought this was cool, but it's kind of crappy. You should really change this. So this is give and take between the two things. But because Perl is not a hugely popular language and doesn't have like APIs tied to it that are people are constantly using it, you can't change it. It's been allowed to grow and change and pull from all these academic circles and try all sorts of experiments because it's basically, you know, a backwater because it's not the big popular language that some platforms, you know, depends on to be used. And so that's why I'm saying this is, this is a place for you to look because it's, it's a language that, that has been evolving and changing at the library level. And that's what makes it crappy in that you don't want, you want your language proper to do this, not to have to use these libraries, especially as the libraries seem to change every two weeks. But it's, it's, a, it's a testing ground for all these different things. It's like, we've tried it. Come learn from our experience. Perl, the Perl 6, design of the Perl 6 language itself, if you've never looked at it, you should Google Perl 6 and look at the language spec. It's got some amazing stuff. For example, uh, regular expressions, which if you had never heard of and then you first saw them in Perl, and you, and you like them and didn't worry about the line notes, you're like, oh my God, regular expressions. I've been doing this by writing you know, a parser and C a character at a time, and I'm going to want to shoot myself in the head. Regular expressions are just so much nicer. That's why people loved Perl so much. Right? Perl 6 does to Perl 5 regular expressions what Perl 5 regular expressions did to writing that crap by hand. Nobody knows this because Perl 6 doesn't exist in any real usable form that people would want to use in production code at this point, but the language spec is there, and anybody who's interested in, like, parsing things or using regular expressions or anything like that should have years ago looked at the Perl 6 language spec and learned to look at what they've done to regular expressions and sort of seen the light and say, this is every other language is just now getting around to adding Perl 5 style regular expressions to their language. Perl has moved on. Perl is doing, you know, the next level up from Perl 5 regular expressions. Whether they can ever ship that or not doesn't mean these ideas are bad. Uh, so I would say that I really hope Perl 6 comes to fruition and becomes a real language that people use. But if it doesn't, I really hope that other languages steal every single idea that's in it. And if you want to put it in a form that has fewer dollar signs or something to make you happier, go nuts with it. But the ideas that are there are awesome. I think that's what I have to say about Perl. I don't know if I've convinced you of anything. 
Well, here, here's what you've convinced me. You've convinced me that there, there are still smart people using it. Yeah, and in fact, if you're the type of person who wants to dick around with languages, sorry, you might have to leave. No, nah, we leave that. Uh, it, if that's your thing, it seems like the, the languages that are attracting that is JavaScript seems to be attracting a few of those people. Because, but they're kind of doing it at the source but he, level. But here's the get. thing. Here's it. Let me butt, butt in here for a minute, John. Here's the thing. What's what's really there? There seem to be two types of. I don't know the right word. There's there's two focuses right now for what, what people seem to want to do when they sit down at a computer to to create some kind of application. I'm not saying this is across the board, but I'm saying that at least in the sphere of of the things we talk about, typically. There's two kinds of applications that people are thinking about, web applications, and to be honest, uh, iOS applications. A third would be a traditional desktop application, but those are th- the first two that people think of. And, and when they think of creating uh, you know, an iOS application or a mobile platform application, in, in the world we live in, it's usually iOS. Of course, you could, could be Android, and that means Java, so you, there's nothing to talk about there. It's Java. But in, in iOS... You know, you you're basically it's the same situation. You really should be using Objective C. And then on the web side, you know, what do you what do you mainly see when you're building web applications? You see a lot of PHP. You see a little bit of Ruby on Rails. You see a little bit of uh, Python, Django, and you see a a, a bunch of uh, .NET stuff. Where does Perl fit into either of those? As far as it, you know, in 2011, those are the two cool things that people seem to talk about and do. And and when you look at the companies that are starting up and what infrastructure they're using, it's you know usually the PHP, Rails, Python, uh, .NET type of framework. And and if it's a mobile application, it's Objective C or Java. Where does Perl fit into this? Why why today would somebody say, "Well, I, I really want to go learn some Perl"? Well. I was mostly talking about languages before. Languages are much easier to deal with in isolation. That's what the whole earlier part of this thing was about. Right. I was talking about what's good and bad about the Perl language. I'm just trying to evolve like, the example, conversation a little bit. I know. I, I think, for example, we can. it's not hard to find things that are wrong with the PHP language. Oh, that's a whole show not, right Not there. hard at all, right? Because that's just a train wreck, right? And that gets back to like why things become popular. PHP became popular despite the disgusting nature of the language because like, it's got the deployment story down and it was widespread and it, it, it did enough of the stuff that Perl did that it was Perl-like, but really, really it was the deployment uh, story. So when it comes to like, why should I use a particular language for something? Again, the quality of the language really doesn't come into it. Now, if you were to ask somebody, why, what should I use for blah, they will attribute their rejection of a particular language to the language. When it really has nothing to do with it, like Perl, I'm not going to use that for, you know, task X. Perl sucks. So it's not because Perl sucks that you're not going to use it. It's because of reasons that have nothing to do with the language. That's why people legitimately pick PHP to do stuff, because it's got a whole bunch of other stuff down. Like, because my hosting provider has PHP, because PHP is dead simple to deploy. You just put the file out there. It's everywhere. It's proven. It has, you know, known performance characteristics. You know, that's why I use PHP. Same thing with Ruby. You're not using Ruby because Ruby is awesome. I mean, a few people are because they think, you know, it doesn't have the, the dollar signs and they like it and because it's all beautiful and everything, and, uh, and all that business. But if there was no Rails, you know, there would have been no, you know, 
camping and no Sinatra and no 8 million other, you know, that wouldn't have been that renaissance in web applications. So no one would have a reason to use Ruby, despite the language, how awesome the language was. It would have been like the pre-Rails days where it's like, Ruby's awesome and all, but why the hell would I ever pick it? And they right. would dismiss Ruby as some crazy, obscure language that isn't that related to Perl in some way? And no one uses <laughs> that. For anything, right? right. So when you decide what you're going to use to do a particular project, the language quality has nothing to do with it. So it's kind of a shame that Perl gets thrown under the bus because of that. Now, to give credit where credit is due, the, re- the reason Ruby goes from obscurity to, you know, to the de facto choice for writing web applications is because someone wrote a good framework in it. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And th- that will anger some of the Perl people because they're like, Ruby does nothing that Perl can't do. And in fact, Perl is better in almost every possible practical way aside from aesthetics than, than Ruby. But no one in Perl wrote Rails, right? And, and the thing that Rails did that the Perl web frameworks, of which there are many, didn't do, has nothing to do with technology. This is another source of, uh, of bitterness. I mean, it was a source of my bitterness, too. When I, when I saw Rails first came out and I looked at it, and I was like, this is, it looked to me like my first web framework, like with all words capitalized. Like, <laughs> it's like, so here's a dude who, who, you know, it's like, oh, I see all the mistakes that he made. Like, these are the rookie mistakes you make when you make a web framework, right? Because you could see them in there. You know, it's like, well, he's tying his forms to his object, uh, to his database object, and he's tying his database objects to his database schema. And it's like, yeah, that's a mistake, dude, because you really want those to be independently factorable. And, you know, <laughs> he's tying all, all, all sorts of things that you did that were just, if you had written several other web frameworks, as you were usually forced to in the, in the pre-Rails world because everyone was writing their own, you saw all the mistakes in Rails version one. But he got one important thing right that nobody else got right. And that's why Rails became popular. And, and it's, it will annoy people that his crappy framework that made all these horrible rookie mistakes became popular. But he earned it by coming up with the one insight that trumps all the other rookie mistakes. And the insight was his convention over configuration thing. You know? And to some degree, other languages and frameworks had that idea, but, but he took it to an extreme. Right? He said, this is an opinionated framework. We have one way to do stuff. And in fact, you don't even have to tell us about half of the stuff you're going to do because we have tons and tons of conventions, many of which you may disagree with, but I don't really care because look at how little typing you have to do because we've done all this convention stuff, right? And that, that one incredible insight trumped everything else and allowed his, you know, my first web framework to just sweep around like fire with the screencast and everything because no one else was, and people may have been doing convention over configuration, but not to that degree, like, when something happens like that, it stands out from the crowd, and it made a big, big difference. And yes, it also helps that he's personable and smart and had good marketing behind him, blah, blah, blah. But that was the key insight of, of, of the Rails framework, and that's why people use Ruby today to write. And, you know, Ruby, of course, evolves, uh, although I would still say not as far as it should. But it's been evolving and refactoring, and he's been trying to mend the sins of the past as much as he could. Active Record is still pretty crappy, but... You know, it's a, the individual components are still not up to the standards of the best of breed of those same components in other languages and stuff like that. And the web framework is still not the best web, fr- web framework in the world. But at a certain point, you get enough momentum and community behind you that that, that becomes a factor there. So, so what I would say for what would you use Perl for these days? You can still write web applications in Perl more or less similar to how you write them in Ruby. What you won't get is all the support you get for Rails, the 8 billion books, the one unified framework that everyone pretty much agrees on despite the other little hangers on. In Perl, there's like 17 different web frameworks. None of them are as cohesive uh, or as you know, well-debugged or as commonly used as, as Rails. So all of your attention is going to be split. Like The bottom line is you, you probably shouldn't. 
the advantages that Perl has over other languages is that it still has a much better interface to C libraries, I feel like. Mm. But it's nice to write. It's still just a big hairy mess to write. But the thing is, they've been written, tons of them have written over the years and they're really, really fast. That's one of the key things that made Perl great back in the day was that, you know, we're writing some Perl code to parse XML. The Ruby guys are like, all right, we'll, we'll write some Ruby code to, to parse XML. And it was dog slow and disgusting, right? Or, you know, we'll write, we'll write our own little web server called WebBrick and we'll write it in, in, uh, in Ruby. It's a, no, stupid. It's not going to be good. Don't do that, even for the dev, you know. All sorts of things like that, that with the Perl solution was much more pragmatic back in the day. It's like, all right, well, we want to write a web server, but Lord knows we're not going to write a web server in Perl because that would be nuts. So we're going to do mod Perl where we're just going to take a Perl interpreter, jam it into Apache, and now we've got this super fast and incredible, you know, you know, always advancing and developing uh, web server written in C that does all of like the header parsing and all that stuff for us, and then we've got glommed onto there our Perl thing. And when we're going to parse XML, we're going to we're going to we're going to make a module that wraps you know uh, XPad or that wraps libxml2, and we're going to rely on that. And that was the Perl way always. Find the super fast C library that does the thing you want. Put a Perl wrapper on it, packages it a Perl module, and use that. And Perl, the CPAN has like, I don't know how many modules CPAN has, 20, 30, 90,000, mm. huge number of modules. A lot of those are awesome interfaces to super fast C libraries. So, we, you know, I would say for a lot of tasks where a high-level language like Python or Ruby may be too slow, chances are good that there's a Perl module that you can use, quote-unquote Perl module, that really is just a thin wrapper around a C library. They will let you write a Perl script that can do your job really, really fast. Uh, and that sort of pragmatic attitude towards don't, don't be shy about taking a C module and using that. Don't be shy about th considering the things that low-level languages do best. And don't try to do them in your high-level language, even though you think it's neat and you can make a DSL or whatever you want, hell you want to call it. <laughs> Just use the C library because it'll be way faster. And that's always been the Perl way at every step of, at every step of its development. And CPAN is huge and has tons of modules. So I would say for a certain class of things that you want to do, if you find yourself doing it in Ruby and ends up being too slow or annoying or something, consider looking at Perl to see if you can do it uh, faster with a CPAN module. And even things that are just written in high-level languages. Rather than writing your own library to do something in a half-assed manner in Ruby, if you can't find an existing one, chances are that there's a Perl library that does it. And maybe the Perl library is half-assed too, but chances are good that if it's a common task, there are 17 Perl libraries, and one of them is really good because it's been developed over the past decade and has been thoroughly debugged and performance tested and so on and so forth. So there are still many tasks for which Perl is really good, but in general, if you're writing a web application, I would say that you're, you're best going where... The, whatever the most popular thing is of the day. And right now it's like, you know, Rails or Python has a lot of good web frameworks too. I would And, and PHP, if you really need to do that for deployment purposes, I, I suppose you can. And something new will come along someday and, and, you know, due to Rails, what Rails did to, you know, plain CGI and stuff like that. Uh, but the, re the reason things get written in Perl is that either because the developers know Perl very well and that's the most efficient for it, way for them to write something or because it's a legacy application has just been evolved. Um, I think Amazon still uses a ton of Perl. Amazon was built on Perl, and they still use a lot of it for uh, for their systems. You could rewrite Amazon in any language. You could rewrite Amazon, you know, using Ruby, using a Rails type thing, using you know anything Java. Uh, you could rewrite parts of it in PHP. But bottom line is that a lot of their web frontend was Perl, and I don't know if they've been slowly evolving away from it or whatever. But uh, a lot of it still is, just because you know why rewrite code that works. Uh, and that's true of a lot of uh, old old school sites, sites that were built when Perl was popular. A lot of them still use Perl. I think IMDb still uses Perl. Uh, and there's not a lot of benefit to rewriting those. So 
that, that I would say is, you know, what, what's a, a reason you might find yourself writing Perl? It's because you have to deal with a program that was written in Perl back when Perl was popular. And I think if you started doing that, you wouldn't be too upset by the experience just because it's not Ruby or something. And, and I think that would help you appreciate some of the things that are good about Perl. Hmm. But no, I wouldn't say go out and start writing your application in Perl. Unless, unless you want to do it as a, as a sort of a research experiment to see, like, what is it like to use a different language that has totally different customs than I do and, you know, see what modern Perl is like. I know a lot of people who knew I was going to talk about Perl wanted me to talk about modern Perl, which is this buzzword which basically says don't do things the way we used to do things a decade ago in Perl because we've come a long way since then. Since then. And that, that's getting back to like, what do you mean it's come a long way? Perl 5 hasn't changed that much, although it has, but people don't realize it. Uh, but what they really mean is that we've come so far as a Perl community trying out all sorts of different things that we've long since tried and discarded and tried and discarded and tried and discarded. And if you're still doing the thing we discarded in 1996 you're not like writing the same language as we are, even though that's, you know, it's, it's a higher level concept at a language level. A modern Perl is saying Perl can do all sorts of nice things and you should really do them the way we do them in modern parlance. Don't write Perl like you're writing it in the nineties and then get pissed off because you think it's gross because nobody does it that way anymore. Like we've, we've decided that, <laughs> that this is not the way to do things, you know? And, and again, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be an evangelist for Perl and say you should go out and, and uh, write everything in Perl, right? Write in whatever language gets your job done for you. But uh, I'm explaining why uh, people might be writing things in Perl and, and why it's fun. And I would have to say that you know, for my job, I like Perl. I enjoy doing it. Uh, obviously, it's the language that I know best, so it's it's easy to enjoy something you have expertise in. Uh, and, and I get frustrated when I use languages that don't have things that I take for granted in Perl. But I'm not blind to the fact that it's definitely not at the you know, it's not the hot new thing. It's not at the tip of the spear. It's not even in mass popularity anymore. You know. All right then. I think we do more shows on Pearl if we want yeah, to get. Yeah, maybe like, maybe Pearl. we should do that because people have a lot of Pearl prejudice. I still see it in the chat room. People going, "I can't believe he likes Pearl. Doesn't he like good things? But Pearl is bad. Pearl is bad, but you like it. But you like good things. I don't get it." It's, yeah, how can you how can you like using Mac OS ten but also like Perl? That's crazy. The thing is, if you look at the people who like Perl, they're not like Mac users, and they're not like you know aesthetes and and people who really want things to look just so. Those people definitely went to Ruby, but they do have a weird kind of hippie creative slant to them. Like uh, like the guy who wrote Perl is trained uh, uh, formally trained as a linguist, uh, which is a a variant of, you know, like you could say like the mathematicians, maybe they like Erlang or something, right? But the people who are into Perl are kind of artsy-fartsy and weird and hippie in a liberal arts type of way. So even though it's not exactly uh, exact overlap with Mac users who like everything to be white and shiny and clean and everything, those are definitely the Ruby people, there is a lot of overlap. And there is a lot of overlap between Ruby and Perl. Like that, that sisterhood between Ruby and Perl, I still see. And even though Ruby took a lot of those users from Perl and other languages like that, there's still a kinship between them. So I don't think it's as far apart as people think they are. Hmm. But yeah, there's a lot of Perl prejudice, unfounded Perl prejudice in the world, which still, like, I don't get too upset about it, but it's a shame to see people bagging on Perl. Like, there's so many legitimate reasons not to use Perl. Why bag on it for ancient reasons? And and it because it blinds you to the good things about it. So then I see people, you know, relearning the lessons that Perl learned a long time ago. I'm like, if you weren't so prejudiced against Perl and were blind to the things that were good about it, you could have learned these lessons, you know, take our knowledge and move it 
move it forward into your And language. you're saying that that's not true of Perl? In other words, the people who uh, perhaps were learning those lessons while they were learning Perl, those weren't the same lessons that had been learned in a, a language that predated Perl itself? Well, that, it, it is to some degree. Like the Lisp and Smalltalk people would be rolling their eyes at the Perl people, right? It's all a question of degree because like how many people in the world either are writing Lisp or have ever written Lisp? Lisp, right? And compare that to the number of the people people in the world who are writing Perl or have ever written Perl. It's like orders of magnitude bigger for the Perl people, and then yet orders of magnitude bigger than that for JavaScript, for example, right? So it's that's how things move into the mainstream. They move from the languages that nobody used, right? Nobody is writing serious applications in Smalltalk, like effectively nobody, you know, and in Lisp, like these little tiny corners of people compared to the, the huge swath of programmers, right? And then Perl steals most of those good ideas. And suddenly Perl is wildly popular in the CGI era. You remember that, right? So it brings in this huge audience of people who are seeing these ideas for the first time. But then Perl falls by the wayside, right? So these ideas are crawling their way up from, from research and obscurity. And like the, the next lowest down on the rung where you can get these ideas from if you're up there in, in the current popular languages to look down to Perl. Yeah, you could look all the way back to, all the way back to uh, Lisp and, and uh, Smalltalk to get those ideas too. But why not just look down to Perl because they have much more re- practical experience. And Lisp, by the way, I would add that the lesson... That I would take away from from the Lisp experience is that syntax is actually a good thing. I know Lisp people will disagree with that, but that that's like Perl was the anti-Lisp, and Lisp had no syntax, and Perl was like all syntax. And they're saying syntax is incredibly important. Like again, written Perl was made by a linguist, right? Syntax defines you know the language, and even though you think Lisp is beautiful and pure because it doesn't have a syntax and it's basically like an abstract syntax tree spat out onto the page with a bunch of fingernail clippings in it. It, it doesn't, that, that that is basically that hasn't caught on people don't like that people need some form of syntax uh, and maybe Perl took it too far in one direction or another but uh, you know and same thing with small talk like Objective-C took a lot from small talk that, that I think is an even better example of where in old research projects gained pop, you know concepts from an old research project have gained popularity in a more pragmatic context in that people are using Objective-C, which borrows so much from the small talk ethos of, of how to do things and message passing and all that business, borrows not so much from the syntax and totally eschews the entire, you know, giant memory image where everything is mutable, blah, 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 to say, no, it's a C-based language, it's practical, it's for getting work done, but a lot of small talk ideas are in there. I didn't make up that fingernail clippings thing, by the way. It's a common, <laughs> uh, common uh, lisp put down. We should probably wrap this up, man. Yes, I know. I got I too long on languages. This is a good one. We've been waiting for this one for a while. See if we get any hate mail. Maybe we'll revisit it in a future show. Yeah, we'll have to see. I, I have a feeling we, people will email us. Uh, Tell us not to talk about Pearl. Please don't talk about it. So if, if, you do, if you do want us to talk about Pearl, again, or programming languages, or programming languages uh, and you really want to contact us, that's fine. But if, if you don't, we'll, ju- we'll just assume you don't. Yeah, don't just we'll just assume that nobody does, and yeah. only the positive, only the people who want us to talk more about it. They can right. email. See, we'll see if that actually produces <laughs> a smaller quantity of mail. I hope so it's not fifty-fifty. So we're looking for. All right, so uh, so that's it. So be sure to check out the Intuit Small Business Blog at blog.intuit.com. You can also search for Intuit Blog in the iTunes App Store, and you can read an interview there with me, where I reveal things I have never revealed anywhere else. This is true. And also check out campaignmonitor.com/slash. Worldview to see a good way to use a programming language, JavaScript, and uh, you can you can follow John Syracusa, S I R A C U S A. Same name as uh, some uh, province in Sicily, I think. It's a city. It's a city, not a province. I think so. 
You can follow him on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter, Dan Benjamin. We appreciate all of you uh, tuning in and listening. Please consider rating the show on iTunes. It really does help us because uh, the more of you who rate the show, the more chance there is it will get featured, which is the way that new people find out about it. So we thank you for doing that. And uh, John, have a great week. <laughs>